Hello, and welcome to the Remedy House podcast, where I talk about new knowledge, resources, and books for anyone curious about mental health. My name is Renee Watson, and I'm so grateful to be chatting with you. If you're new here, welcome. If you're not new, thank you so much for your support. Any links or resources mentioned in this podcast will be linked under the podcast tab on my website at remedy.house. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. I'm so glad you're here, y'all. I wish you could see the way that my desk is covered in papers, um, the time leading up to uh, recording these podcasts. It is so fun for me. I just love research, and I love having all this knowledge at my fingertips, and I hope that I am in the company of other people who have similar interests. Um if you've gone through your master's program for becoming a mental health professional in any form, you know we have been trained to be researchers and to understand research. And that is because like other professions, um, there's so much coming out and being learned about mental health. But in particular, counseling is still, mental health is still a very new kind of, I guess, industry or area of science where we can actually look and observe the brain doing its magic now. Um, And in years past, 50 years ago, we couldn't see the detail um, in neurology and neurological studies that we can now. So it's just so cool to be able to do this and to continue to be able to talk to you about things that I hope we are all passionate about um, if we're interested in mental health. So today we are going to be talking about language and personal narrative. Um, Kind of an overview. This is something that I am always interested in, um, probably extremely biased towards, as I'll talk about throughout this podcast. And um, this serves kind of as an overview intro into um, some of the new stuff recently that has come out maybe in the last 20-ish years about neurology and how it just changes how clinicians can view what the brain is doing and attempting to do um, and maybe failing or succeeding there. So um, yeah, let's get into it. Also, if you hear paper shuffling and things like that, that's going to just be constant throughout the entirety of all my podcasts because um, I have tons of things on my on my desk to share with you. So um, I hope that adds ambiance at least. Um, so yeah, let's get into it. So I'm a strong believer in the idea that we construct our personal realities through defining language about who we are and what we believe. I'm a huge proponent of narrative therapy in general um, and the power of bibliotherapy. So those are two things we're going to talk about. Um, And in this episode, we are going to talk about the things I have just mentioned and about how we can make meaning in our minds, how we do may make meaning in our minds and how language literally changes our perception of the world. So, yeah. Okay. So first, let's just talk about this this, um, language obsession I have and kind of dig into the overview. So I am obsessed with language and how it affects our lives. If I went back to school, I think that I would get some degree in sociolinguistics. Um, I discovered, I think I talked about this in the last podcast, I discovered that my obsession with words um, and how we use them really came from my first few 
um, counseling sessions as a student intern. Um, it was completely amazing how I would say words and clients would say words and we would not be talking about the same thing at all. So depending on who's using these words, the meanings can can vary greatly and it, it just has always fascinated me from that point on. The very nature of the way our brain uses language to make and communicate meaning is incredible. The more I look into it, the more I read about it, um, what we thought it to be and what we can observe it being now is just, it's just always shocking. Uh, researchers have found that meaning is made in the brain when language sparks something called embodied simulation, which is going to be a lot of what we talk about this time. So before the cumul cumulative research supporting embodied simulation, as a process of meaning making in the brain was um, were produced, there are a lot of other theories about how meaning was produced in the brain. There's the mentalese theory. Um, there is kind of a lexicon theory. Uh, very interesting things. If you are interested in uh, just exploring the vast amount of research a little bit more concisely. The book Louder Than Words by Benjamin K. Bergen, which I will be reading from and mentioning in this podcast, is a great read, um, very enjoyable, so highly recommend. Um, also, this is just generally, like I said, a topic I'm going to um, revisit very often. So if you're interested in that, just keep coming back. Like Language will be a consistent guest on, on the Remedy Else podcast. So in short, embodied simulation is the sensory representation of a word or set of words created by the brain to make meaning of language. The most extensive research on embodied simulation actually is showing that visual simulation is the primary way the brain does this. So we are visually, our mind's eye is imagining, uh, reimagining what we have seen um, interpreted to interpret the language that we're getting. Um, so, but there is, I think it's like 3% of the population that does not use any type of visual stimulation, or I'm sorry, simulation to make meaning. Of course, remember, um, very few, if any, modern um, research opportunities allow for direct brain observation and like probes or anything like that because of ethics. So we're grateful for that. But some of, a lot of this is self-report. Um, when we talk about how simulation is happening, like, um, you know, asking subjects in research to tell us what they're experiencing. So obviously this 3% could be more or less. And obviously you have to consider the fact that visual simulation requires visual experience. So or to a point at least requires visual experience. So a lot of the research being done on this is being done with individuals who have normative sight, like um, they can see with or without glasses. Um, and so I am looking into what this may look like for people who do not have normative sight. And that that is a lot less research, to be honest, unfortunately. So um, stay tuned and I will keep you updated with what I find there. So, but it, it is interesting what we can parse if we combine the results from the two populations, I think. So anyway, that's another podcast. So um, embodied simulation. So 3% may or may not actually use visual simulation to, to make meaning. 
Um, there are people who are actually more, more prone to simulate meaning um, visually and more who are prone to, to simulate meaning verbally. So they use um, verbalization to memorize or to categorize. It's just sharper in their mind or more um, easily accessed. These are actually cognitive styles, which I hope to do a future podcast or a substack on. Very interesting. Um, if you have a, a visual cognitive style versus a verbal cognitive style, what that means um, for how you use your brain and how you try to understand yourself and others. Super interesting. I get caught in these rabbit holes. and <laughs> That's where these, these uh, topics for these episodes come from. So you may very well see a podcast on cognitive styles. Um, what is infinitely interesting is that the visual simulation conjured by the brain for any given word or phrase is not necessarily the same for any two people and can vary in orientation, perspective, and level of detail from person to person. So Bergen, when I was reading about this in his book, he talks about how if you tell someone to imagine a dog, they're going to imagine their version of a dog based on their experience with a dog. I might have a lot of detail, if they're an expert in the field of dogs, for whatever reason, or it might have a very specific um, dog breed or face or orientation, is it's incredibly interesting. I encourage you to uh, just go and ask your friends, family, to tell them, tell you what they think of when you ask them to think of a dog, um, and see how different it is from your own, especially younger children. When you ask them, you know, when you think of a dog, what do you think of? It really does explore different levels of knowledge and experience, and it helps you kind of be more, I would say, intuitive and empathetic towards our different perspectives in larger, more difficult situations. Very interesting. Um, so we're caught up on the most re recent um, research, sorry regarding language and meaning processes in the brain. So let's dig a little bit deeper here. I believe that our stories are significant. That is one of my pillars of functioning is stories are significant. Um, inside and outside of the clinical circumstance, stories are significant to me. And I believe that for a few reasons. I'm going to talk about two big ones. Um, during this podcast. So the first is connected to these embodied simulations. If we're making meaning in very personal ways shaped by culture, language, and experience, how does that allow us, or in many cases, hinder us when we're trying to communicate with someone else? How does that meaning we make change how we understand and attempt to be understood? I think this is the core of the magic of relationships. So a little aside here, there is no doubt that healing happens in relationship. I'm specifically referring to mental healing at this moment, but I do have a belief that other ailments as well can benefit from interpersonal relationships. And that's, that's a different podcast too. Um, so someone write these down for me. <laughs> Talk therapy of any kind is relationship-based healing. That's what it is. Um, if you've been in your master's program, um, really, I think, too, like psychological um, bachelor's degrees talk about this. The first thing you learn is that for counselors, the number one indicator or predictor of success in therapy for your client is the strength of the client-counselor relationship. 
the strength of the client counselor relationship, the compatibility of the client and the clinician are the number one, is the number one predictor and can be the number one indicator for success in a therapeutic relationship. So I encourage you to think about that if you're looking for a clinician. I encourage you to remember that if you are a clinician, because your primary goal is to sustain a fruitful and strong relationship with your client. And this is also why I think choosing counselor is so hard, but such good work to do on the front end. And that's why access is also so important. Again, just these topics that come out of what it means to have a good clinician, to be understood in your client counselor relationship, and to feel comfortable. Um, That's something that I love talking about. I love helping with if I can, uh, because I do feel like it's hard to get through the jargon to actually understand, like, is this going to be a good fit for me? Everybody is different, whether it's because of your faith or because of your experience or because of your circumstance or family life. Everybody is different. And that means your counselor has to be different too. So I'm so glad there is increasing diversity in the client, I'm sorry, in the counselor population. And I love y'all, I love talking about helping people with, with this issue of who should I find as a counselor. So yeah. Absolutely. So think of the person you know best. There are reasons why you may feel very well known by that person. So obviously trust, that's a huge thing. How much do you trust that person? The length of the relationship, your proximity to that person. Are y'all neighbors? Did you meet online and y'all live in different countries? That does influence how well known you can feel by that person. Um, But at the end of all of these things is the reality that the person who knows you best can most easily decode your mental simulation so that sometimes you can even speak without words. You know that friend who across the room can give you a look and you know exactly what's going on where they're at, even though you cannot hear them and you can only see their face, right? Um, They know the meaning you make you know the meaning they make. This is an incredible gift of intimacy that takes a personal investment to help each other decode mental simulations over and over again. In the book, How Emotions Are Made by Lisa Feldman Barrett, if you recognize uh, that book title and that author, it's because I absolutely gushed over that book in my first podcast. And it's, um, It was a very powerful book for me to read, and I absolutely enjoyed it. Highly recommend. Uh, Barrett recognizes this when she says, successful communication requires that you and your friend are using synchronized concepts. The ability to use synchronized concepts, yes, has a cultural component. Yes, has a um, similar language component. But often it is because you have shared overlapping experiences with each other that allows for that. So think of inside jokes. That's exactly what that is. One word can set off a torrent of laughter because that's a shared experience where that one word makes so much meaning. I mean, it makes an entire experience of meaning. I I just love that. And I think it's the height of intimacy, that kind of thing. Um, So someone is intimately familiar with how you think you're well-known when something happens that you can't account for or cope with. Um, you have someone you can not only 
imagine in general what it might be like for them, but you can imagine imagine specifically for them what meaning they they may be making, right? Um, this makes me think of if you've watched Brooklyn Nine Nine, which is a particular favorite of um, my husband and I, and really our friend group. It's it's a it's just we love it. There's so many inside jokes with us because of it. But in that um, show, there is Jake, who's one of the main characters, played by Andy Samberg, and um, Boyle, who I do not know the actor's name. I guess I should know, but I don't. And he is, Boyle is, in, Charles Boyle is incredibly invested in his um, intimacy with Jake and increasing that intimacy, however he can. And what you see throughout the show, in the beginning of the show, you watch as Charles um, attempts to finish sentences, Jake says, or guess um, actions he will have and missing the mark constantly. And then, you know, it provides a lot of laugh factor and it's great. But as the show goes on and ultimately concludes, you see that the two of them have come to share a lot of experiences, a lot of shared language. And a lot of these trying to get, finish sentences and guess actions, a lot of them, you know, they're successful on both ends. And it's um, what makes stories like that so powerful and still so funny because that's what you uh, experience in your own life is um, the working together with another person consistently over time so that you build like these levels of intimacy you wouldn't have with other people um, because you... Um, there is no effort there yet. So this is something for me that is exceptionally important when we're thinking about how significant our stories are and how we can be well known and translate those to other people. Being understood is incredibly powerful and we're able to be understood through the stories we tell. This is essentially the case for narrative therapy for me, um, which again, huge proponent of. Of course, I am very eclectic in practice, like many clinicians are nowadays, but narrative therapy holds a special place in my heart. And I think by the end of this podcast, you'll know why, but um, this is the a foundational case for narrative therapy. Um, so the second reason that stories are very significant to me is a little bit complicated, but I'm going to try not to dig too deep here and maybe um, save some of that for the Substack that I write uh, to accompany each podcast. So if you want to dig into that and be a little bit more neurologically nerdy, I encourage you to to look at the um, to subscribe to my Substack newsletter, and you'll get all of my references and all of um, the kind of the more thorough descriptions of the neurology sometimes. So, um, but yeah, so my second reason for really feeling stories are significant is that if we cream, if we, um, create meaning for ourselves through culture, learn language and experiences, then it follows that the stories of others invariably play a part in shaping our stories and the meaning we make about the world around us. So simply speaking, these are our families, our friends, teachers, faith leaders, mentors who speak into our lives and our identities through their own worldview fueled by their stories. That's so important. So what your parents teach you is, is some distillation of what they've been taught through experience. So it's not necessarily exactly what your grandparents did. Um, it's not necessarily exactly what your parents' teachers uh, taught, 
but it is some distillation of all of that experience. That is what is teaching you and raising you. It's, it's incredible how complex that is and how impactful that is. So this, this all may feel a little obvious, but things get more subconscious in relationship. Um, let's, we're going to talk about two neurological concepts here, and uh, we'll start with mirror neurons. So mirror neurons are actually, I think they were discovered in the last 20 years discovered and and, um, researched in the last 20 years, and they reveal the potential way that we learn to communicate meaning in stories. And our brains mirror neurons, and I believe mirror systems also exist. Um, They're activated when we observe someone else perform an action. So that's to say that these systems activate when we engage in an action and when we watch someone else engage in that same action. So our brains literally participate with what is happening in front of our eyes. And this is very similar to how embodied simulation, well, at least um, visual embodied simulation works in the brain to make meaning of language that I talked about earlier. This is also important because we know that the more certain pathways in our brains are used, the denser and more interconnected they become. So others can influence the physiology of our brain simply by our observations of them. So we know that this, when we're talking about um, children being raised or kind of coaching or mentoring teens and young adults to understand the power of their peer groups in their lives, this feels just very obvious. This feels like something that we talk about often. Um, But have you considered what you take in through your senses and how those things shaped your identity or continue to shape your identity and personality as an adult? So I think a lot of times, we look at, you know, I feel like this is such a common thing to talk about, but it is it is truly a new topic of conversation, even though it feels like it's been around forever. The way that social media, the way that popular media, the way that songs, books, I mean, truly anything that, that you can intake that is new to you, um, affect you and change you over time is exceptional. It's absolutely exceptional. It's incredibly impactful. And I think that a lot of times um, the effect of these things are downplayed because we feel superior to them. Um, And this is not me um, pointing a finger or claiming ignorance. It's who I'm saying this is literally how we were made to interact with each other. And this is why it is so easily impactful to our brains when we experience it in real life, because we were made for this to happen. So none of us are immune. And I think that, um, stories become even more significant to us when we realize what they're capable of. Um, If we decide to integrate them or what they're capable of, if we decide that they're not valuable stories. So that's a different part of this that for sure we will be talking about um, in another podcast. So um, something else that influences here and we use quite frequently to make decisions and act every day is something called a mental model. Mental models are the description of a thought process that helps us understand how something works. So like the idea of supply or demand, uh, or I'm sorry, supply and demand, that's a mental model of the economy, which I think we're all pretty familiar with. So a mental model is an internal understanding that clarifies a part of our external world, much like a parable. So a study that came out this year 
yep, this year by Philho et al., was aimed at developing a tool that could measure shared and complementary mental models in sports. Um, so effectively, this group of researchers was tr- were trying to develop a tool um, that would help them parse out the different mental models used by each player to attribute skill sets and knowledge sets for their particular job and the jobs of others on their team so that they knew when and how to execute their role and then when to effectively pass the ball and um, allow others on their team to do the same. So obviously this would happen very rapidly um, and is incredibly interesting. I, that uh, article will be linked to my Substack um, paired with this, this uh, podcast if you're interested. But as a part of the process for creating this measurement tool, the researchers drew on the metastability theory of the brain's function. So this theory states that the brain uses segregative and integrative tendencies to perform complex and externally cooperative tasks. The authors of the research article say this, there is also consensus that emotional synchrony and humans mind reading ability, which allows for emotional synchrony and empathic behavior are only possible due the, to the brain's so-called mental, st- ment- sorry, <laughs> metastability property. That is the brain's ability to activate shared, which is the integrative tendency, and a complementary segregative tendency um, neural networks. So segregative segregative tendencies are specific task-related systems in the brain. So you can think of them like specialized subsystems, very commonly connected to motor tasks, whereas integrative tendencies refer to more global brain functioning, usually connected to large cognitive loads. Um, So they work at the same time. And that's what the theory is saying, is the brain is able to work both ways at the same time. So incredible. Um, So if we go back to the way language is understood in the brain, we can see that acquiring shared mental models to understand our world enables or disables our ability to understand others and our world in general more intimately. This is an incredibly complex activity that only humans can do. Only humans can do this. Telling our stories while simultaneously working to understand the stories of another. That is something only humans can do. And our brain is made to do this particular work and to be influenced and changed by it. That is relationship right there. That's what language is for. That is relationship. So of all the other things that we do on this earth, just know our stories serve a great purpose and that is to affect change in ourselves and others. And I think, again, stories are significant, right? The political and marketing industries know this very, very well, as I'm sure you know from experience. Often stories are carefully crafted and delivered through popular media so we can learn to understand the world through the lens of a story created by some person somewhere, right? So, That is something I think we experience even in um, seconds regularly throughout our day, um, no matter what we do or where we go. But there is also another industry that literally uses stories to transform our perspective of the world, even if for only a short time, maybe once a year for some of us or multiple times um, a year for others. And it's publishing. 
The publishing industry literally sells this stories, right? Parables are of particular power in our culture. A huge example of that being the Bible. You know, I think everybody knows that, right? So many cultural norms and beliefs are products of the biblical parable. In in the U.S. specifically is what I'm referring to, or I should say, I guess, Western Europe as well. Um, because the Bible is like the number one selling book or just well known or you've seen it somewhere or something like that. It is so powerful, in fact, that even moved away from the knowledge of the original work, quotes and lessons in the Bible are passed along like oral histories and even in non-biblical uh, households or entities, right? So right now, I want to talk about the a type of story that we consume in short and long form that has incredible power because of its truth and experience. Memoirs. I don't know how many of us read memoirs, but I love reading memoirs and recommend that I love recommending them to people um, in and out of counseling sessions. Like memoirs are of infinite power in my, in my humble opinion. Um, memoirs are products of humans who are willing to be valuable and transparent and share all the sordid and joyful details of their lives just so that we can know them better and thereby know others who have similar experiences as them better. And I won't say that every person who's written a memoir is altruistic and that's their only reason that they're writing it, but it doesn't change the fact that reading their experience will help us understand the experience of someone in a similar position. So I want to read you this excerpt from Bergen's book that I mentioned earlier, Louder Than Words. So it's a little bit, um, it's a little lengthy, not, not terrible. So bear with me here. So he saw, he was talking about embodied simulation in the brain. Um, and he goes on to say, thus far, we've emphasized the features of embodied simulation that people have in common. But the truth is far more nuanced. People don't all simulate the same things or simulate them in the same way. For one thing, the embodied simulations you construct are based on the experiences you've had. If everyone had the same experiences, they'd be able to run the same simulations. But they haven't, so they don't. Even something as banal as the word dog has qualitatively different effects on people. For someone who is bitten by a dog as a child, the mere mention of the word dog can evoke images of a massive, snarling, ferocious beast with frightening incisors. Images that the word dog doesn't usually trigger for the rest of us, except upon extended reflection or in the right context. Our unique personal histories produce stark differences in everything from how we reason to what we value. And so it shouldn't be surprising that they also affect how we understand language. So you guys, this is something that um, I have a great personal example of and I want to share because I feel like this touches language and culture in real ways. So my family, I'm first generation American. My family's Jamaican. Um, in Jamaica, you don't necessarily, at least not when my parents um, were in Jamaica, they did not, you don't keep dogs in your house as pets. They might be guard dogs or something of that nature. But by and large, in Jamaican culture, they are outdoor pets, I, I think. So that is the first, very first context I had for dogs is that they stay outside. Regardless, they're outside. Um, we did not have a dog as a pet, so it pretty much began and ended there for quite a while. 
as we got older, I live, we lived in um, a small town. Oh, there's a plane. Oh. <laughs> I was not expecting that. Um, as we got older there, we lived in a small town in Texas and in the suburbs. And as you can imagine, a um, Jamaican family in a small town in Texas years ago, we were one of the only uh, people of color on that street. And so often um, neighbors who were not so kind would um, let their dogs out just to chase us. I have no idea. Those are those are some stories that are a little bit muddled for me because they were very, very uh, traumatizing, a lot of them. Um, so that added another layer of understanding about dogs to me. That's they were kept outside. They're not pets. They're guard dogs. And you know, they can be used to hurt and scare people. Not a fan of dogs. Um, so I had multiple experiences like that. And then, you know, I met my, my husband. Um, weirdly, none of my friends really that I was close to that I saw constantly had dogs that I remember, or they were very small dogs that I didn't really interact with when I went over. So I'm, if I'm remembering them correctly, but uh, my husband and his family are very um, fond of animals. And you know, of course they had dogs and cats and it is through them that I learned that dogs can be fine. They can be indoor pets and they can be fine and happy and loving. And it took a long time though. There was a lot of fear and trauma there. And I can tell y'all, I did not really think about how that particular, um, word was nuanced in its simulation in my mind, like Bergen is talking about, until I had to confront it and do something different with it, which I would propose is kind of a picture of cognitive dissonance in the brain and, and working through that and why it becomes so hard to change these simulations we have because it seems like a very... um subtle thing to recognize the nuanced definitions that create these simulations in our mind. And if we don't have a lot of experiencing experience confronting them, then we, it seems like we typically wouldn't. So I think that's a lot of times why in counseling, that would be the first time you're engaging um, these new definitions you need to put on things. So that is, is my personal experience of what Bergen is talking about. So again, for some of us listening, because we're in this world, um, this may be very obvious to you or well known to you, but this is the foundation of talk therapy. This is the foundation of treatment modalities that say you are the expert of your own life and a counselor exists to help you interpret that experience, to clarify your story. So how would it change us to read the experience of others and integrate that experience into our understanding of our actions and how others may act or try to be understood? That is always the question for me. That is what create, creates my obsession with language and our stories. We impact each other so severely because our stories are significant. So in his book that I just read from, Bergen goes on to talk about the research supporting experiences role in shaping embodied simulation and comprehension of language. We're going to get into the practical trans, uh, translation of this research and what it means for healing in formal or informal treatment situations. 
Before we move into my final point, practical applications, if you've enjoyed this episode so far, I encourage you to sign up for my Substack newsletter that I've mentioned a couple times, for which the link can be found on my website. That's where you'll find more resources on this topic that I'm not able to link or reference here. It is also a great resource if you prefer to read a concise article about new mental health research books and the like. So moving right into the practical applications here. There are so many treatment modalities that are supported by the research and neurological observations I've been talking about, like EMDR, if you're familiar with that incredibly successful, efficacious treatment modality um, that uses eye movements to help effectively reprogram the brain regarding trauma. Very interesting. If you don't know about it, you're a new counseling student or you need counselor, and you haven't really explored it, I encourage you to explore it. I think it will change the way you um, understand how the brain works and even put another um, goal on your list for as a clinician. So there's EMDR, there's the external externalization technique or deconstruction technique that are both found in narrative therapy. However, I want to talk about a more underrated intervention that is always available to us inside and outside of the um, clinical session, and that is bibliotherapy. So uh, when I say it's available to us, I just mean um, to say that books are, are readily available to us. How many times have you recommended a book that touched you? Okay, even if you read like once in a blue moon, how many times have you recommended a book and you're just like, oh, that was that was killer. I can't believe how good that was or how much I resonated with that. Um, How many times have you received a recommendation for a book that really impacted another person? I mean, at least once. (laughs) If you know any number of people, at least one time. Books, whether you read them or listen to them, tell stories with great detail that affects us because we are using our meaning-making muscles to simulate what we're reading. Everything from the grammar used to the description of a color in a particularly harrowing scene in that book transforms how we simulate and conjure meaning in our mind. Done enough, our our mental simulations can take on more details or new perspectives in a given circumstance, even if it's not part of our own personal experience. So you have never been unincluded in a situation because of who you are as a person read about it. Get some experience uh, for from others who have been in that position. You've never been diagnosed with a terminal disease. Read about it. You have never lost someone or gone through the, the fight and struggle to heal from a terminal, uh, unknowing you didn't know at the time terminal disease. Read about it and experience it. You've never lived with a disability. Read about it and understand it. You've never worked with a group of people to rectify a huge social problem. Read about it and gain some insight, right? So you see the theme here. We do this in school, and I encourage all mental health professionals or enthusiasts to make this a yearly goal outside of the classroom. Yes, get your training for treating conditions or life circumstances outside of your realm of experience, um, but also engage that community stories through the resources they have already put out into the world in the form of story. The understanding you gain there is different and absolutely worth it. Let me tell you, the understanding you gain about a problem, um, having read about it in a textbook, having ex- spoken to someone about it in a, in a, 
from a clinician standpoint or in a session, having read about the dirty details in a memoir or having experienced it yourself all add differently nuanced levels of understanding to that simulation in your brain. And I do not think that we can be more powerful than when we can see something from so many different angles, because that means we can see the different perspectives of, of our people, our clients, our clients, people, their families, um, and leading them and treating them in these situations becomes infinitely easier and more difficult because we are able to be more empathic and sympathetic in these situations um, because mean, there's more meaning and detail there for us. Um, there is a lot of research on the ways that experts view things and understand things in, in much more nuanced detail simulations because of just, you know, their incredible amount of experience with these things. Um, so I think honestly, like if you wanted to just kind of touch on that research from a bird's eye view, Blink by Malcolm Gladwell actually talks about it in a different way. I think more metacognition, but that's, um, that effectively encompasses meaning making and language too, I think. So you can start there and I always have recommendations if you're interested. So always ask. I can promise you that your depth of understanding and emotional synchrony will increase simply by reading and learning from the experience of others. It is a low cost way to gain the wisdom and experience of multitudes. I think we need a lot more of us willing to pay those low cost entry fees into a world with greater empathy and mutuality. So if you know anyone who wants to gain that or you want to gain that yourself, highly encourage that you participate in some self-directed bibliotherapy or if you are in a situation where you can engage your clinician um, or be a clinician who thinks more about how books can fit into the process of healing, highly encourage you. And there are some great resources out there for um, finding books that match and work and bless us in that circumstance. As ever, I've done my research, but you should too. Check my sources against your own and always exercise sound judgment. If you enjoyed this episode, I invite you to subscribe because I would be glad to have you back for each new episode. I'm so glad you've joined me today and I would love to hear your thoughts. So reach out to me in the comments via the Remedy House website or find me on Instagram. We'll talk soon.